Um, I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to Genesis. Today brings us to chapter 34. Um, I, I do want to point out that in uh, our scripture reading that, that John read for us, that the point is, we've all been forgiven of much. It just depends on if you realize that or not. Anyway, Genesis 34. Um, so, uh, our, uh, our church, not necessarily Liberty, the church uh, in America has been in the nation's mind a lot recently. Uh, and I wish I could say uh, it was for good reason. Even in our own conven- convention, the SBC, uh, we've been rocked by sexual uh, abuse scandals where prominent leaders had gone to great length to cover up uh, sexual abuse in churches and even try to protect uh, the abusers uh, so that they continued in the ministry. Uh, and so um, we, we've been rocked by that and we're far from being the only ones. Um, and so... It seems that as the church in America, we're, it seems like we're losing sight of our goal or our, our purpose. That's what happened to a guy named Mark Driscoll. I've mentioned him before. Uh, Mark Driscoll was a pastor of a church in Seattle, Washington, and, and he grew in popularity really rapidly, uh, probably over a 10, 15 year period. And uh, back in college, I used to listen to him a lot, listen to his sermons, his preaching. Uh, he was really dynamic, a uh, really good speaker. Uh, I read his books. He, he was uh, one thing that I really liked about Mark Driscoll is he was really blunt. Uh, he didn't like to, uh, you know, beat around the bush. He was really blunt. But just a few years ago, this this great prominent leader fell, and his church dissolved completely. Church of, of thousands just dissolved completely, and and many people made this point in the aftermath that his gifting outpaced his character. That's that's what happened to Mark Driscoll. His his gifting as a as a as a preacher, as a speaker, or whatever, it outpaced his his character, and so his character wasn't able to to keep up with all of his popularity. And so what happened is is Mark Driscoll, uh, for 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 Mark Driscoll, church became about Mark Driscoll, right? And, and this this happens in churches all the time. They they lose sight of their goal. Churches lose sight of their mission and their and their purpose, and they get sidetracked either. Either the church becomes about a leader or it becomes about some kind of pet issue or, or, or whatever. And this is why it's so important that we protect what we promote. Right? This, this is why I, I like for us to read Scripture together and, and, and pray the Lord's Prayer together. A guy named Mike Cosper explains it like this. He said that much of the history of Christian worship is premised on the idea that the church gathers together to rehearse the truths of the gospel and the vision of the kingdom of God by repeating the words of liturgy. So we, we pray the Lord's Prayer, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we sing psalms and hymns. It's, it's by virtue, he says, uh, of that repetition, by repeating it, that the work of the gathered church stays with us. And when a moment of hardship strikes and our own words fail, these words are at the ready. So the prayers we repeat and the communion we take or the Lord's Prayer or Apostles' Creed as well as much of the music of the church connects a Christian not only with the body of Christ around them but with the global church that shares those words throughout time and space. So in other words, the reason that a church does those things 
It's so that we don't lose sight of the goal. We, we keep the goal central, the purpose, the purpose central. We, so we always have to ask ourselves, what are we promoting? Like what, is, what is the language that are, we're using? What are the values that we want? What, what, as a church, do we want to happen? What, what is our goal? Unfortunately for our place uh, in Genesis, and in particular the Jacob story, nobody seems to ask these questions. Nobody asks the question, what is our, our purpose as the, the, the family of God? What is our purpose as Israel? And this, again, this is not unfamiliar to us in Genesis. It's, it's a tragedy all around. Um, and not one character really has it all together. Not one character has uh, completely righteous motives or actions. And Jacob's family loses sight of their goal. And so what I want to do in this chapter today is, is point out four guardrails that, that we see that keep us from losing sight of our goal. Four guardrails. Alright, so we're going to read this whole chapter. Uh, follow along in your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will, will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. 
On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? So at this point, it's important to remember where we are in in Genesis as a whole. Uh, Jacob has only recently returned from his his exile with Laban. Remember, he was with Laban for so long. Uh, Upon his return, uh, after Laban, he he faces Esau, fears for his life, but he's reconciled with Esau, and he's just re-entered the land of promise. So it shouldn't be lost on us that this is the very next event that's recorded for us upon their re-entry. That's important. Some time has, has probably passed, right? Between chapters 33 and, and chapter 34. But the author, who Moses, decided this should be the first event recorded for Israel in the Promised Land. And what an episode it turns out to be. And the first guardrail for the people of God is this. Remember the vulnerable. Remember the vulnerable. The beginning of this chapter follows, and, and the rest of the chapter kind of um, pivots around Dinah, the only daughter of Jacob, mentioned at, at least this far in the Genesis story. Okay, So we were already given a hint that, that Dinah would, would kind of feature prominently. Back in chapter 31, Jacob is having all these sons, or I'm sorry, even chapter 30. He's having all these sons, and then all of a sudden, we're told that he has this one daughter, Dinah. Uh, and so we're, we're told that at this point, Dinah is going out to see the women of the land, and this guy, Shechem, takes her and, and he rapes her. And this is not a, a pretty scene. Now, for an Israelite reading this later on in Israel's history, he might be, at least I was, uh, reminded of an event that takes place in 2 Samuel 13. There, uh, a man also falls in love with a woman. It's, it's David's son. Uh, his name is Amnon. And he falls in love with his half-sister, Tamar. Right? The, the Old Testament's filled with drama, isn't it? Right? So he falls in love with his half-sister, Tamar. And he also rapes her. But, but Shechem actually uh, has a leg up on David's son because Amnon hates Tamar afterwards. He, he's drawn to her. He does with her what he wants. And he hates her. And he, he shames her. But, but Shechem actually falls in love with Dinah. Uh, now, uh, here's a, uh, a wrench for some of you who, who like, like this, but uh, that word agape that we usually associate with, with God's love is actually used here of, of how Shechem feels for Dinah. So um, take that with what you will and how we, we use uh, those words. Maybe that confused you. Forget about it. We can talk about it later. But anyway, don't, don't get me wrong here, all right? Shechem's behavior is disgusting, okay? It's, it's disgusting and shameful. And, and every Israelite also reading this should know they should avoid intermarriage, right? That, that's like one of the main things, avoiding intermarriage with the peoples. But, but Shechem does a surprising thing here. 
He, he actually is, the law of Moses hasn't happened yet, but, but he's still following a provision that we, we see later in the law of Moses, right? In Deuteronomy 22, a provision is made for this exact scenario. It's, uh, Deuteronomy 22 says, if, if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, like Dinah, and seizes her and lies with her, like Shechem, and they are found, then, the, then he shall pay a bride price, and she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. As always in Genesis, the actions of the characters are a mixed bag. Okay? Uh, we, we've seen this over and over and over again. There is so much sin and so much vile behavior mixed up with, with good and righteousness. But the point of, of that provision in Deuteronomy, right, is the protection of the vulnerable. In, in this case, a, a young girl or a young woman, right? It protects her in the event that she's raped because now she's unmarriable. And in Deuteronomy, you have to marry her. You can't just leave her. So it actually protects the young woman. And throughout Israel's history, one major concern is the mistreatment of the vulnerable. I mean, not, you're not, not, not just reading like Judges and, and Joshua and Kings, but the prophets, right, over and over and over again, how they love God is shown and how they treat the poor and the needy and the widow, the fatherless, the vulnerable. Jesus, the heart of Jesus, we see is one that is especially concerned with the vulnerable. And and don't hear me say, I I don't want to pretend to act like I know what they should have done. I I don't know, and, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But nobody for the remainder of this chapter is concerned with the larger question, what should be done to protect the vulnerable? Nobody's asking that question. And I know we live in an age of the victim. Um, everybody can make their case by acting victimized. And this is human nature. We, we do this with God, right? It, it sin's not our fault. It's because of the circumstances. I'm stressed or depressed or whatever. We, we make excuses. We try to make ourselves a victim so we're not so guilty. So if you thought I would let all of us off the hook. But still, we live in an age where being a victim kind of gives you a, a, a card of righteousness, right? Don't blame me. I, I'm a victim of, of whatever. The challenge of the church is not to dismiss all victimization. We don't just dismiss it. The challenge is to have discernment to know who truly is vulnerable and what we can do to protect them. We don't dismiss all victimization. There's... What the problem is, is that there's so many people doing it that we, that we then forget the people who are actually being victimized. We as a people are concerned about many developments in our country and in our world, but let us never, ever, ever forget or shun the vulnerable. And, and this continues to play out, right? This um, Instead of asking the question, how do we protect the vulnerable, they, they then kind of take this scenario and twist it for their own purposes. So it, it can be hard to discern who is a victim and who is not. And the moment, right, we even in our conversations, maybe on Facebook or something, we start talking about different groups and who needs protection and what, we start to get real passionate about it. 
Uh, but this leads to the second guardrail, be wary of zealous passion. So Jacob hears what happens and, and we just he holds his peace, right? He, he holds his peace. Again, no character here is completely commendable, but it seems Jacob has a decent response. It, he doesn't do anything else for the rest of the chapter. I think he should. I think he should step up and try to rein his sons in. But right here, he, he does something okay. He, he holds his peace. I, I, I think with Jacob, we're kind of seeing that expression play out, right? Cooler heads prevail. You guys know that? Cooler heads prevail. But, but he, he lets his sons get, get ahead of him, doesn't he? he? The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant, very angry. And I, I want to take a moment and say at this stage that both Jacob and his sons have completely understandable responses. Right? At this point, neither of them are, are wrong. Like, like I think it's, I think it's right for Jacob to, uh, <laughs> I think it's right for Jacob to hold his peace, and it's right for Jacob's sons to feel indignant and angry, right? Uh, like, like feeling indignant over sin is a good thing. Um, I, I, one time I read an article about a husband who knew his wife was posting pornographic pictures of herself on the internet, and not only did he know it, he, he supported it. And like, exceeding jealousy can be very unhealthy, right? If, if, if a spouse, boyfriend, or girlfriend, whatever, is exceedingly jealous, that's unhealthy. But I felt bad for this husband because he didn't seem to have a tinge of jealous indignation over his wife. I felt bad for him and for his marriage. There are many areas of sin that our society are not adequately indignant over. All right? Many areas that we do not show an adequate indignation. The problem happens, it comes... When we let those passions control us. That's when the problem happens. That's, that's what happens to Jacob's sons. They're, they're rightly indignant, but wrongly give way to their passions. So I, I think the men here might most identify with me. Some women might. But it's kind of like when, when you're angry and you're trying to fix something, but instead you break it and you make it worse because you're so frustrated. Surely I'm not the only guy in here that's ha that has done that. Like I get so mad at a project, and I'm like, and I end up breaking it, just making it worse, right? That's what happens, right, with Jacob's sons. They get angry, and they just make it worse, and that's what happens when we let passion or anger control us. And this is actually a really timely warning for us, because many people, especially TV and media personalities, make their pay by arousing passion. They need an audience. They need numbers. And they feed on making people passionate. I just saw a, like a headline uh, from a news article about how TikTok, a new social media app or whatever, um, the most viral videos are the ones that get people into a rage. Those are the ones that are shared the most. People are less concerned about truth and more concerned with passion. They'll, they'll dabble just enough truth in there to get us passionate about it. And if we are, in the lesson for the church is if we are to keep our sights on the goal, 
we must be wary of overzealous passion. Overzealous passion, and, and I would like to include uh, Jacob's non-response too. It's good to have a cooler head uh, and to hold peace, but non-action is, we need to be wary of non-action too. And, and then what happens next in this chapter is perhaps the most insidious in which I think we as a church must most be on our guard against. And it's this, this is the third point. Defy hypocritical religious garb. What I mean is this. We must defy using religious, Christian, or biblical language to justify otherwise sinful behavior. Using religious, righteous language to justify sinful behavior. So, what we see in Jacob's sons is what we have seen throughout Genesis, right? The small sins of yesterday, without repentance, the small sins of yesterday become big sins later. So Abraham told a half-truth about his wife. His son Isaac tells a full lie about his wife. Jacob is a deceiver. And now Jacob's 12 sons are deceivers too, and this time with dire and violent consequences. So the half-lie of Abraham now becomes this full, fully developed, lying, vicious deception here. And it happens this way. Shechem and his dad make an arrangement with Jacob and his sons. Shechem can marry Dinah with one caveat. Verse 14. We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. But as, as we're told, right, Jacob's sons use this deceitfully. They use the pain of circumcision to create an advantage over Shechem to destroy them. But wait a minute. Circumcision means something completely different than taking advantage of someone to destroy them. Circumcision, remember, was God's covenant sign with Abraham specifically that through Abraham and his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Circumcision was a reminder that they are who they are because of God and the sign that through God's blessing, they would then bless the nations. But here, Jacob's sons use circumcision not as a means for blessing, but for curse. So, just as Dinah was defiled by Shechem, here circumcision is defiled by Jacob's sons. They are using virtuous language or, or virtuous acts as a means for nefarious ends. For evil ends. This, this is, guys, this is so much what's driving the, the uh, war in Ukraine with Russia, right? Putin... Vladimir Putin has utilized the Russian Orthodox Church to cloak his crusade in religious language to motivate Russia to invade another country. That's, that's what he's done. Like, that's, listen, this is the case for the Crusades. They, they use a, a personal agenda cloaked in religious garb. This is the case for the religious wars in Europe. One reason why Europe is so uh, atheistic now is because uh, so many people use religion as a means to try to grab land and go to war. 
Um, uh, this was the case for much of the exploration, European exploration. Uh, go, uh, they were able to convince kings and queens to go. They wanted the spice mostly, but they, they justified it more by saying go and baptize and make Christians of these tribal people. And, and even in our own history, we use this for slavery in many parts of the U.S. We use religious language. Biblical language even. That's what's scary. <laughs> Not just any old religious language, but biblical language. And this, this is very, very dangerous because it does two things. One, it, it blinds us to our own self-righteousness. It convinces us that we're righteous. But secondly, and, and most importantly, it defiles the name of Christ. Circumcision here becomes associated with vengeful curse. Instead of circumcision being associated with God's blessing, it becomes associated with vengeful curse. And in sin, and using religious garb, Christ becomes associated with hypocrisy and unrighteousness. And far be it from us to bring disrepute on the name of Christ Jesus the Son. May it be far from us. And I've done this. I, I have brought great disrepute on the name of Christ. Defy hypocritical religious garb. And finally, resist resorting to violence. We're told in verse 25, last part of the chapter, on the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, and, and I think we're to understand that they weren't alone, but that they led the charge. They probably had servants and things with them. So Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. I want to ask you if you've ever heard of something called the horseshoe effect. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but essentially it's, it's when one group becomes so radical or excessive that it's opposing group in response begins to behave in the exact same way so wikipedia says this rather than being at opposite and opposing ends they closely begin to resemble each other analogous to the way a horse the opposite ends of a horseshoe are close together uh, i think we see this in many ways in our own culture uh, but we can see it playing out here jacob's sons behave in a way no better than their opposing counterparts right shechem the pagan commits violence against Dinah. Jacob's sons, Israel, commit violence against the city. A, a lot. Uh, don't get me wrong. A lot could be said here. This scene uh, actually closely resembles Israel's later conquest of Canaan. Uh, but in contradiction to that, right, we have no clear direction or command from God. <laughs> That's great. Yes, the telephone. No, no, no. Yeah, thank you, Viral, for closing the door. We have a, a ghost phone out there. But let, let me let me go back and say that again. I'm sorry. The, I'm sorry for the distraction. Uh, this scene closely resembles Israel's later conquest of Canaan. However, here. There's no direction uh, from God or, or command from Him. God, God's not even mentioned in this chapter. So we're basically left with our hands in the air. What's going on? Like, who, 
what's happening? Who, who comes out in the end right or good or, or whatever? Basically, basically we're, we're, what we're seeing is they've lost sight of their purpose. They've lost sight of their goal. Listen to the questions that we could ask of this. Could they have let Dinah marry for her own protection? Could they have? Or, or would that have been an example of intermarriage? Could they have demanded justice from Shechem? Or could they have simply denied his request for marriage? I don't know the answer to those questions, right? I, they, we could answer those questions in several different ways. But instead, they resort to unconstrained violence and destroy and plunder an entire city. They, they bypassed all of those important questions in their own personal vendetta. And, and I want us to beware of, of just bypassing important questions like that. Because we're often, often in culture, we're confronted with situations that aren't so clear cut as a lot of people would have us believe. And, and while we may not commit violence ourselves, I, I, I'm not worried that some of you are just going to go and join a, a mob of violence. But we must be careful when we give approval to violence that serves our purposes. And, and really, the last few verses just sum up the conundrum of this chapter. Because both Jacob and his sons raise important points. Jacob said in, in verse 30, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. So, great point. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And, and I don't know that there's a clear answer to, what, to that. I think we're just kind of like, I think you both raise good points. Overall, this, this chapter is a warning that God's people can lose sight of their mission and go too far. This is a very real danger of the church. We can lose sight of our mission and go too far. That, that Jacob's sons behave like this does not bode well for the promise of blessing. All right? It doesn't bode well for the future of Israel, Israel or for the hope of the world. Remember, the hope of the world depends on Israel showing God to the world. What hope is there if this is the reality? What hope does the world have? But praise God, twelve wayward men cannot thwart His purposes. Praise God that the hope of the world doesn't depend on the wayward nation that comes from these twelve men. God's commitment to bring blessing to nations and to the vulnerable prevails despite man's warped sinfulness. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus proclaims that He is the one who brings blessing to the nations. He reads the scroll from Isaiah and sits down proclaiming, I am the one who brings blessing to the nations. And in response to this, Israel once again plans to commit violence. They were filled with wrath, it says, and rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. And what happens? 
But passing through their midst, he went away. It wasn't the wrath of men that was Jesus' greatest enemy. It was, <laughs> sorry, let me rephrase that. It wasn't the wrath of men that Jesus came to pacify, but the wrath of God on their behalf. And, and despite the violence that comes to Christ on the cross, the blessing of God prevailed. And not only did the blessing of God prevail, it has abounded. How wonderful is it that God's blessing in Christ has abounded to you? Respond to this one who didn't treat you the way you deserve. Respond to this one who doesn't repay you according to your sins. Respond to this one who instead was treated the way you deserve. And now treats you the way that he deserves. And let's, let's keep our eyes on this Messiah. Keep our eyes on this Savior. That he would be our glory. In our mission. In our goal. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You give us warning. Because You know that in our sinful hearts we can so easily go astray. and We can lose sight of, of the vulnerable. We can um, use Your Word to justify our own sins. We end up responding just like the world. We, we end up bringing curse instead of blessing you, God. Just as your blessing prevailed in the cross of Christ, we pray that your blessing would prevail in us and through us. May your spirit prevail over our sin. May your spirit prevail over our pride and our waywardness. That we would be filled with your grace and your presence, that that would abound to the because that's our purpose, that's our goal, that's our mission, that blessing would go to others. Others who don't deserve you just as we don't deserve you. Thank you, Father, that the blessing of the gospel has abounded through time and space to reach us in this room. And may that gospel continue to abound because of the one who came not to do violence, but to receive violence.